Welcome to the Caring Together podcast. Caring for a loved one can be one of life's greatest privileges, but caregiving can also be overwhelming, exhausting, and isolating. Whether you're currently a caregiver or just want to learn more about caregiving, we're glad you're here. And I'm Jack Baker. I'm one of your co-hosts. I've been involved with supporting seniors and a caregiver myself for over four decades. And I'm your other co-host, Amy Smythe, with the Area Agency on Aging, Region 1B. In this season of the Caring Together podcast, we're focusing on what it takes not just to survive, but to thrive mind, body, and soul during your caregiving journey. We're grateful to our sponsor for making this season possible, the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Legacy Fund for Caregivers at the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, with additional support provided by the Area Agency on Aging 1B. So welcome to season two of the Caring Together podcast. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. It's nice to be back together, Amy. Um, You know, our new season probably couldn't be more timely with all the craziness in the world about the coronavirus. I think for a lot of caregivers, um, you know, for any American, I think it's just, you know, it's it's, uh, disorienting, a bit stressful, but I think that's especially true for caregivers. Sure, there's a lot of special issues that caregivers are facing right now um, in terms of even greater isolation than they Mm -hmm. faced before. Yeah, I saw something funny on Facebook, a meme that talked about how introverts have um, trained for this their entire lives. And it it kind of struck me that I suppose caregivers have too, because in many cases, they are, you know, very self-sufficient, often isolated, for sure. You know, but it's also, I think, for many caregivers, a stressful time. You know, they're trying to balance many demands on top of all the normal stresses. Now we must deal with this COVID-19 stuff. Yeah, well, that's why I think that this, like you said, this is a a really timely series that we're doing this season. And, you know, with that, I want to introduce our our guest that's going to be with us for the next five episodes, next four episodes, including this one. Um, And that's Jill Gaffner Livingston. So in addition to Jill's two decades of personal experience, she's a certified dementia practitioner and certified Alzheimer's disease and dementia trainer through the International and National Council of Certified Dementia Practitioners. Jill's also the founder of Global Training Experts, through which she's trained thousands of formal and family caregivers throughout the world. Jill's also authored Personal Positioning for the Caregiver, a motivational guide on staying healthy while caring for your patient. With that introduction, Jill, welcome to the Caring Together podcast. Thank you, and I appreciate the invitation to be here. Well, could you um, kind of start with your journey, how you first got uh, involved in caregiving? Sure, I can. So the the, uh, the short bio that you just gave on me, I, I appreciate that very much. You mentioned Jill's a certified dementia practitioner, certified Alzheimer's and dementia care trainer. Many times people think that came first, uh, but quite frankly, I those credentials weren't even around when I began my my caregiving. Uh, my experience, you know, I certainly never intended to be a caregiver. Like most people, we prepare our lives without giving giving thought uh, to really what a caregiver is. But back in ninety. One, I became a caregiver to my husband. I had gotten married in 1982, young age, 22 years old. And uh, we lived in, in Houston. 
Bob was a, um, a radio disc jockey for an oldie station. And uh, we lived down there. We had our first two kids there, Bethany and Jacob. And then about nine years in, when Beth and Jacob were getting ready to start school, we moved back to Michigan, where my family was. Uh, and it was shortly after we moved here that Bob was diagnosed with double lung cancer. Now, by that time, he was 35, I was 32. And as silly as this sounds, he was otherwise healthy. Uh, so the, the plan was to have half of a lung removed on one side, three quarters of a lung removed on the other side. He had many of his ribs removed, all of his nerves on the left-hand side. And the doctors explained that this was going to be a, an adjusted life, but, uh, it, um, you know, but he, he would live through this. So because of his position, in Houston at the radio station, uh, Kraft Foods and Holiday Inn of, of Houston uh, helped us at that horrible time when the medical costs were extreme. And so they helped us with uh, some of the costs to pay that, that off. And so when Bob had gotten through his chemo and his radiation, we took a short, long weekend trip to Houston to thank them for helping us. And it was on that short mini vacation that Bob had a grand mal seizure and ended up at Katy, Texas Hospital, where they identified a, a tumor, a golf ball-sized tumor in the occipital lobe in the back of his head. And then everything changed. And then his life expectancy went to more like two weeks with zero chance of survival. So, of course, here we are in Houston. We had Bethany and Jacob had, uh, with us. Actually, we had driven, driven there because that's what you do when you're young and, and broke and ambitious. And, and uh, they wouldn't let us drive home. So we got on a plane. We returned to Detroit Metro Airport where my parents picked us up and took us straight over to what was St. John's Hospital. And uh, and the doctors there, uh, the first thing they did was confirm that that's true, that he has zero chance of, of survival. And there were a lot of people that got involved at that point. But what, what it was, uh, Jack and Amy, is they had people like social workers and end of life and attorneys and so forth. They didn't have anyone in there to help for recovery or long-term or certainly caregiving wasn't even a word back then. Mm -hmm. In fact, they used to call me a caretaker, and I kept saying, I don't want to be a caretaker, right. you know, trying to, stop, to stay away from there. And um, so then there was a doctor that came through and offered Bob an option to have the uh, surgery to remove this inoperable tumor. And the way it was put to him was that you could have the surgery, and you may die on the table, but uh, you're going to die anyway. Or you could have the surgery, and you may get through the surgery, but not with your eyesight because of the location of the tumor, but you're going to end up with two or three months with Jill and the kids. Or it could be that all the stars align and everything goes great, and you wake up, and you have your eyesight, and you get two or three months with Jill and the kids. And so Bob chose that option, right? He said, yeah, you know, I want to do everything I can. So he went through the surgery. You can imagine what it was like in the recovery room, right? So he wakes up and, and we're standing there. Number one, he woke up. Number two, he could see us. So all the stars were in line. But now we had to figure out what happens in the next 
two or three months. What does that look like? What do we expect out of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and uh, it, Jill, just to, ca- to catch up for a second. So many caregivers, I think, have been in a similar situation of all of a sudden they become a caregiver, right? Yeah. None of us ever have planning for it or training for it or anything like that. That's and right. yours initially was with lung cancer with your husband and the prognosis sounded good. But then you have a double whammy, right? Because of the the seizure and everything that went on from that. I imagine with young children and all the things that go on with being a caregiver, that must have been just kind of an overwhelming experience. Well, it is overwhelming. And, And especially the fact that so many caregivers are still raising children or even raising grandchildren. So you're still trying to keep that community of family somewhat normal, which uh, I used to tell the kids, if you want normal, you should go to a neighbor's. <laughs> normal <laughs> does not live here. So, but um, as a result, Bob um, lived through that two or three months. He lived through the next year, the following year, about the fourth or fifth year, he got this little pinhole in the back of his, his head. And it started leaking fluid. And so we went back to the doctors. No one really knew what it was. But they told us to keep an eye on it, which we did, of course. And so it went from a pinhole to an eraser to a dime, a nickel, a quarter, a golf ball, a piece, and then a grapefruit. And what it was was the radiation that he had taken. Of course, this was years ago when they radiated the entire back of his head, had started decaying his skull. So we had the back of the skull removed. And when we had the skull removed, it launched a series of strokes and seizures and then early onset dementia. Mm. Jill, so let me interrupt you for a second because I, what does life look like for you during this time with your kids at home, him going through all this? Like, what is, what is life looking like? Amy, I have to tell you, it was the most... Uh, you can't, I can't even put a measurable on the amount of, of stress because life still goes on, right? Your bank right. still wants the money right. that pays the mortgage. And, you know, there's a lot of people that can say, oh, I feel for you, but don't be late on your DTE bill. You know, right. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, what ended up is Bob was the, um, the majority um, income in our family till mm-hmm. he got sick, right? And so for me, you know, it was how do I take on the finances of both of us, because I was a secondary income, of course, take care of Bethany and Jacob and Bob and, and the medicine, make decisions. And, um, and what makes matters complicated, too, is that, uh, you know, at that point, I was working two jobs and in uh, my my full-time job, it was, you know, you only have so much sick time. You only have so much time you can and take off. And there again, you know, it depends who your manager is, who your leadership is, because there are people that can say, oh my gosh, you know, I, I really understand. But at the end of the day, if you take more than your allotted time off, you're going without pay. And the right. thing I needed most was pay, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it gets really complicated, Amy, to balance all of this. Um, I will tell you that we got the schools involved, and I think that's critical because we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we were early 30s. We seriously didn't know. We didn't have anyone going through this, not our age, not our parents' age, not our grandparents' ages. So it wasn't like I could tap in for someone else's experience. 
Right. So I got the schools involved and uh, they, and I say they because there were a number of schools over the years, they put the kids in what they called like a leadership class. So instead of going to art, um, our kids would go and learn how to be leaders so that they didn't get involved in a vulnerable circle of kids and maybe mm. follow them into maybe drugs or misbehaviors or and so they, the schools took an active role to help our family and help, um, you know, Bethany and, and Jacob to get through this kind of thing. And uh, so I was very, very grateful. Um, I think that that's a, that's a really important resource that we don't talk about a lot. And even with it, whether it's grandparents raising their, their grandchildren yeah. or younger caregivers that, you know, thinking of schools as part of the caregiver team, really. That's, that's a great right. point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and you know, the kids went through, other kids in the class would be people that maybe are going through a divorce or, or a death or something like this. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the kids had things in common with them, a less than maybe ideal household or, or whatever. So yeah. it, it was good. Well, Bob lived 21 years, and that's the dynamic of the story. So here's a man who was given about two weeks to live uh, with zero chance of survival. And he lived 21 years, and um, of course, a lot happened in, in 21 years. So after you do that, that whole, wow, 21 years, right? Yeah. Uh, then the story starts. How, how did we maintain for 21 years uh, and, and somehow pull out of this to a point where, you know, we, we all successfully got through it? Bob passed away seven years ago. Um, he was very courageous in a lot of things that he did, uh, but all the signs and symptoms of dementia were there, and we did have to find Bobby a facility the last five years for him to live uh, live at, mm -hmm. and uh, and that takes on a different dementia dimension of caregiving as well. And right. people might think, oh, I have my loved one in a community now. I should be relieved of my caregiving feelings or my guilt or my, my emotional restlessness, but that's not how it goes. Mm. Uh, that, that title of caregiving stays with you, whether you are living with your patient, you are supporting your patient, or they're in a community or whatever. If you are in a position to care for someone, uh, like a spouse or you know, sibling, friend, whatever, uh, it stays with you no matter where your patient goes. Sure. I yeah, I think that's something that a lot of caregivers that do care for someone at home don't fully appreciate. I've only recently, the last 18 months or so, uh, dealt with having to provide support for someone that had to be placed first in adult foster care home, then mm -hmm. in a nursing center. And I think you'd think that the day-to-day, -day, you know, 24-7 responsibilities change, but the worry doesn't and the advocacy doesn't and all those other things you have to do. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point, Jack. We've talked about that during the first season a lot about that advocacy and the importance of that. How did that play into your role, Jill, especially once he uh, did move into a facility? As far as what, Amy? You're at the, the role of advocate, 
Like, how did you, so, did you feel like you needed to be there a lot or how did that work? Yeah, I did. You know, and, and the thing was, is, uh, you know, there's a lot of parts of our, our family story here that, uh, that we grew to enjoy. Like the first time we had to move Bob, the reason why I did was the hallucinations that he started to have. And some people may be familiar with a term called sundowning which is extremely common with those that have any of the dementias. Right. And um, so the, unfortunately, Bob saw monsters and monsters came out at night. Monsters lived under our home in, uh, in tunnels. So Bob would try and protect all of us by leaving the house to find the tunnels to get the monsters. And the only way monsters would die is with fire, which really was dangerous for all of us. So, you know, we did our best to work with it and we had like, we installed lights on the outside of the house so it wouldn't look dark and, and uh, you know, we did our, our best to, to work through that. But eventually what it came down to was the fact that it was safety and it was safety for Bob as well as it was for the kids and myself. Sure, sure. And so we found uh, a location and, you know, that, that was a process in itself because the internet was not the internet back then. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the yellow pages. That was, that was Google. And so sitting down and trying to find a place for Bob um, and handle the guilt of finding a place, even making that phone call mm -hmm. is just got so much weight. Like, am I doing the right thing? You know, what, what are my vows as a wife? What is my responsibility as this caregiver? You know, will I ever be forgiven? Who's how many people are judging me? Um, all of that just weighs so heavy. But when we did finally move him in there, and this is kind of fun, uh, Beth and Jacob had purchased him a life-size uh, football player. He liked the Buffalo Bills, loved the Buffalo Bills, and so they got one of those. Um, oh, what are the life-size portraits? Uh, listen. Um, you know what the other cardboard? Like a cutout thing? Where it's yeah, cut it's out a cutout, but it's life-size. Okay. They're okay. kind of popular. Anyway, so the kids got this life-size portrait of his favorite football player, and they put it in his room along with his own recliner. And that's one of the things we say is as much comfort as you can transfer with your loved one to do that. Okay, so here Bob sees this life-size life portrait. And, of course, he thinks this is his new roommate. Oh, well, no. in my head, <laughs> in the committee in my head, I thought the day that we took Bob to his first place, that it was going to be this, you know, hugely sad, emotional tug, and, and it wasn't. I mean, Bob would have dumped me for any major football player, <laughs> let, alone, <laughs> let alone his favorite, right? So it was kind of like he left me in the lobby, similar to my daughter on the day we dropped her at college. And... You know, he was like, okay, well, you know, thanks for the ride. I got to go. My roommate's waiting. <laughs> and so I think sometimes we put all this pressure on ourselves because the committee in our head, the movie in our head, sometimes makes it worse than it, than it has to be mm -hmm. because that day didn't play out as I had thought. You know, Bob yeah. was far more positive about this. And, uh, you know, for a long period of time, he would bring the football player uh, food and he'd have conversations with them and it was a comfort for him completely and mm -hmm. uh, we worked with it as they say with any of the dementias their their um 
their world is the right world. It is, you know, it's their world. Don't argue with them. And yeah. so we never did. What you, what you bring up, though, Jill, um, it echoes, I think, other discussions that we've had in some of the other podcasts that for many people, you know, take parents because a lot of people are caring for their parents yeah. and they feel like they've made a commitment that no matter what, I'm going to take care of you. I'm never going to, you know, don't ever put me into a facility, which I think is so unfortunate because we don't realize at the time we make those commitments that, in fact, that may be the appropriate, in fact, a good choice. Yours ended up for your husband being a good choice and certainly much safer than what you were exposed with. So, Jack, this is one of the important points, and I'm glad you said that because oftentimes we make these promises 20 years before and we become a caregiver for anybody, right? So, you know, we sit there and, and maybe during a, you know, social hour, we write a promise on a cocktail napkin and doggone it, 20 years later, we are going to do everything we can. And sometimes we kill ourselves living to that promise that was on a cocktail napkin when our world didn't, didn't look like that at all. We had no idea. And to make that promise was kind of unfair. But at the time, it seemed like the right thing to say. Right. And so on top of all the care that you're providing for your loved one, now you've got this incredible level of guilt that that's right. builds up for people. That's right. I think that's so difficult. Yeah, that's right. And we have our eye on the wrong thing. We have our eye on how do we live to the promise that we made 20 years ago, rather than how do we how do we live to keep everyone, everyone safe? and secure and as happy as we possibly can. So I, you know, that whole uh, identifying that promise as the primary focus. I have a, a friend, a great friend who I've been friends with since we are in first grade and I'm, I'm no young person here, so that's a long time ago. And she has 11 kids in her family. Now when her dad passed away and we're talking high school, so a long time ago, they, kids, promised their dad, you know, we'll take care of mom, don't you worry about it, you know, and, and gave him all the comfort that he needed in his final days. Well, of course, life went on for 40 years, and maybe eight-ish years ago, their mom started having some memory care, uh, or some memory issues, and, and the cognitive impairment, and all they kept thinking of was, we promised dad we would have mom in the house, we would take care of her. We have got to keep mom in the house. And that was their, their, even though her mom had gotten out and things weren't perfect, but they had a loving family, 11 kids. Oh, what a team, which, of course, we all know doesn't always end up looking like the same team it starts with. But So they take the, their 11 kids and they make this beautiful spreadsheet of all of the tasks so they can equally take care of their mom, right? And no one is overburdened and blah, blah, blah. So they keep mom in, house, in the house. The first uh, person goes over, uh, his job is to drop off breakfast. He walks in, he says, hey mom, where are you? She says, I'm in the bathroom. He says, okay, I'm putting breakfast down the counter, catch you later, takes off. The next daughter is responsible for lunch. She comes over at lunchtime, doesn't see her mom, says, hey mom, where are you? She says, well, I'm in the bathroom. She says, okay mom, I'm putting your lunch on the kitchen table. I'll see you later. She leaves. My friend comes over and her job is to stop by after work at 3.30. She walks in. She goes, hey, mom, where are you? Her mom says, I'm in the bathroom. She goes over. She knocks on the door and she says, mom, can I come in? 
She walks in and her mom had fallen in the tub the day before. Oh. Now here's a loving family, 11 kids. They have their eye on keeping mom at home. And the mom, because they didn't understand the, the dementia, right? And the communication, they were like, well, I don't understand how this happened. I asked her where she was. Why didn't she say I need help? So people that want to do the best things, the very, very best things, have a wonderful heart. They want to do the best things, but it's not always the safest thing because we don't know, you know, uh, how, quite frankly, you know, it's, that's the way it goes. Their mom wasn't asked the question. If she would have been asked, have you fallen in the tub? The mom could have said yes. Right. They didn't ask that. They right. said, where are you? She said, the bathroom. She did exactly the what she, she responded exactly as she had been asked, right? So to your point about keeping the eye on the wrong thing, on the promise, I think it's important when we talk to caregivers to say, look, I know it's hard to make this decision. I know it is. But you have to look at everybody involved, the caregiver, which we'll talk more about how do we identify ourselves as being a, a person that matters, but a caregiver and a patient and family and care and so forth. How do we build a, a plan that's the greatest for everybody? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? So appreciate you sharing your story with us today, Jill. Thank and you. I think that this, this, it really does lay a great foundation for where we're going this season. Before we wrap up today, I, I, I'm wondering if you would speak to that caregiver that's in the middle of their journey right now. What would you say to them today? So I'll tell you, it took me a long time, Amy, to understand the emotions that go along with it. If we could take all the emotions out of caregiving and just follow facts, there's enough information out there. And we got to research and find the right people to talk to. And, and I think there's huge value in making sure that, that you research. But I think the emotional support, find emotional support and share that story. And, that's, and it's not easy. I mean, it sounds easy before you become a caregiver. Before you become a caregiver, typically people are anxious to talk about themselves. They want to talk about what they're going through and so forth because people have things in common. They can relate. and they, they can share their story. But when I became a caregiver, I couldn't find anyone that was going through the same thing. So mm -hmm. I emotionally shut down. Yeah. So beyond the information of your nurses and your doctors and your care team and so forth, find people to connect with. And that I'm going to say never stop connecting, whether it's online, because there's plenty of places you can go sure. online, whether it's area agency on aging and some of your resources, whoever it is, start talking. Don't stop talking because what we know is when we stop talking, we stop socializing, then it starts hitting us as depression. And I didn't have anybody. The internet wasn't around. I didn't know anybody. And I would knock on doors, even to the hospitals. And Bob was at every hospital in Metro Detroit for one thing or another. And I would say, what do you have for me? Because when it came time to take Bob home, they would say, okay, here are your instructions. You know, he's got to take this medicine. You got to change the gauze on his head. Watch out for infection, da, 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 da. And okay, here he is. <laughs> and I would be sitting there going, now what do I do? How, how do I do this? I'm 5'2", he's 5'8". How do I take this person and, and take care of him? I don't even know how to take care of him, let alone size that matters and so forth. 
Um, and all I wanted to do was look at the doctors and say, what about me? Where's my prescription? Tell me what to do so I can emotionally get through this because it's the emotions that knock us down. Uh, there's medicine out there and, and protocol and doctors that know that other stuff. But the emotional connection, when you lose that, you know, even in, in this day and age with work, and, and we know majority of caregivers are still working, believe it or not, full time. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's harder to call in and say, my mom is having a bad day. I have to stay home from work. It's actually easier to call in and say, my child is sick. I need a day off. And people are like, oh, your child's sick. Well, I hope your child gets better. But as a caregiver, to call into work and say, my mom's not doing well. My dad's not doing well. This adult is not doing well. It's not perceived as being needed yet. Right. We're getting right. there. We're just not there yet. Yeah, so, that's one of the things we're actually hoping the podcast might inspire some people to do, because obviously caregivers will be interested in a lot of what you have to say. But also, if you're not a caregiver, you probably know a caregiver. And part of the question is, how do you help? How can you support the person that is the caregiver? You know, you talked about a long journey, 20 years, right? 20 plus years and with a lot of medical challenges and other things. Did you have help? Did you have family members that pitched in or... You know what? Um, I mean, obviously, I had help from my kids, right? I mean, they were always willing, willing to help, uh, and so, so yes, from the the kids for sure. And my family, who lives here in Metro Detroit, they, you know, helped when they could. But of course, everybody's still working, and they mm -hmm. they had to maintain their families and and so forth too. So yeah, it wasn't like I didn't have occasional help. Occasionally, I didn't have any financial help, which uh, you know, that took its, its toll. Uh, you know, you, you want to stay financially strong, but, you know, it, it, there's just no way between everything that you have to pay. And, and Bob was self-employed, which caused a, another upset in finances when we had to close down his company. And um, so, you know, did I have help? I had, I had my religion, you know, so I had my faith. I had my family. But when it really came down to it, the only person that really was responsible was me um, throughout the whole thing, it, you know, until the end. At the end, we, uh, Bob was, unfortunately, he got kicked out of four different locations because of behavior issues, which is not uncommon when you have people that have uh, dementia. But we ended up moving him to New York, and his family's from New York. So the last couple of years, Bob was actually in New York, and he died in New York. Uh, but finding a location for him uh, it, and making sure that uh, it was the right location, that takes a lot because every time we move our, our loved one from one location to another and we change communities and caregivers and protocols, that takes the family and the patient 10 steps backwards. And then you have to rebuild and rebuild. And that was always on, you know, on me. I did end up going back to school at night and uh, earning my degree, which, which really was uh, a help. Because, of course, we never knew how long Bob was going to live. And I knew I would become the primary, caregiver, uh, primary income earner. Um, and then, you know, year after year after year, every time we celebrated another birthday, you know, uh, 
you know, I was, I was happy that I had gone through what I did to, uh, to get through the schooling and, and get through my career and so forth. But, but it took a long time. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you share a lot of it. I'm sure there's a whole lot more you're going to be able to share with us in the coming episode. Years worth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can relate. I mean, I'm going through some of the things you're describing right as we speak, trying mm-hmm. to find a placement for my brother. And so I, I definitely can relate to it. So, you know, we really appreciate you sharing your story with us, Jill. I think part of the, the uh, things we've learned over time is that uh, people that are willing to vulnerably share their struggles, right, helps other caregivers immensely because yeah, it, it is a lonely, isolating uh, uh, work. So, you know, we really appreciate you doing that. And I, I know we're looking forward to, I'm sure Amy is too, you know, the, the rest of the episodes. Yeah, this has been a, a really great foundation for our next four episodes where we're going to be exploring in greater detail how caregivers can stay mentally healthy during what can be a super stressful time in their lives, like you've, you've shared today, Jill. So for those that are listening, we hope you'll join us again for episode two, where we're going to talk about why it's important for caregivers to care for themselves. That, like you say, Jill, that self-care is not an act of indulgence, but rather an act of survival. Thanks for joining us today on the Caring Together podcast. If you'd like more information about the resources that are available to family caregivers, please visit our website, livingstoncaregiver.org, or you can call our caregiver hotline, 844-734-CARE. That's 844-734-CARE to speak with a caregiver specialist. Please consider subscribing to the Caring Together podcast on your favorite podcast platform so that you can receive each new episode when it's released. We hope you found today's podcast helpful in your own caregiving journey. And to all the family caregivers out there, thanks for joining us on Caring Together.